I think there's one word that sums up entrepreneurs more than any other word, and that's guts. You've got to have the guts to do it. It takes guts to stick with it when others would give up. And I've nearly lost my business three times. Can you actually go through those crises where you nearly lose it all and get through those crises and pick yourself up and keep going? Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm joined by Lord Karen Billamoria, the founder of Cobra Beer. We all pray for those moments we find a gap in the market that we can exploit, a weakness in what's currently being offered. And that's exactly what happened to Karen in 1989, realizing the UK needed a better, larger, that content, sorry, realizing the UK needed a better lager that complemented Pan-Asian food. Over the years, he's almost lost the business three times. Now, Cobra is exported to over 40 countries and is the best-selling beer in Indian restaurants across the whole of the UK. He's now a member of the House of Lords, having joined in 2006, and sits as a cross-bench peer. I'm sure there's plenty between 1989 and the House of Lords to go through, and I can't wait to find out more. So, Lord Billamoria, welcome to Secret Leaders. Thank you very much. Uh, what is this sort of entrepreneurial journey uh, that takes you into this gap in the market? Yes, I studied in India uh, until the age of 19. I went to seven different schools. Uh, in fact, spent a couple of years when I was 11, 12 years old in the UK when my father was first year. My father was in the Indian Army and, uh, in fact, retired as Commander-in-Chief of the Central Army in India with 350,000 troops under his command. And moving to different schools was quite an experience. That uh, we'd, we, I'd, My father would get posted at a different place every two or three years. I ended up at boarding school in South India, went to university in Hyderabad at the age of 16. I skipped a couple of years, graduated at 19, came to England and studied here for seven years. I qualified as a chartered accountant with EY, Ernst & Young, and I did a law degree at Cambridge. And my plan was open-ended. There was no, at one stage, would I want to stay on and be an accountant? Would I want to become a barrister, maybe an investment banker with chartered accountancy and law? Uh, and in the end, I decided to start my own business. And I always wanted to start my own business one day. I didn't realize it would be straight after my studies. And that's because I came up for the idea for Cobra Beer while I was a student at Cambridge. And uh, that's when I decided, right, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to take that leap. And uh, I set up with a, a business partner who was a childhood friend of mine from India. Our families had known each other in Hyderabad for four generations. Uh, Arjun Reddy. And we started from scratch with no money. I had 20,000 pounds of student debt to pay off in those days. And we raised every penny along the way. How much of, when I hear that journey, there's a sort of beautiful innocence slash extreme naivety um, that screams through. How much of that naivety that you could start a business like this, do you think actually really helped you genuinely start a business like this? Because I think most people would be put off by the idea of being able to do anything like this as a sort of confidence that is surprising almost. I, I realized that I was in my mid-twenties. I had no commitments, no family, no mortgage. Um, I had no responsibilities in that sense. And I thought, well, let's go for it. I've got this idea. And the irony is I didn't start working on Cobra straight away because it was too big an idea. Uh, I wanted to uh, get some experience. So we started importing products from India. And the first product we imported were polo sticks, 
because I played polo for Cambridge and we beat Oxford in that year. And I led and organized the first ever Cambridge University polo tour of India. And I came back from India uh, with some sample polo sticks and I started selling them. And the first business deal I did, I, I called a saddler I used to play against in Colchester and I said, Bert, I've got some six sticks to sell you. Come and have lunch with me in London. So we had lunch at the Pigeon restaurant in Fulham and uh, I persuaded him to buy 200 polo sticks and he paid me half the money up front, wrote out a check at lunch and that was my first bit of funding. I put in the order in Calcutta and I was in business. And then we imported other products from India, silk goods, uh, high fashion, gold embroidered jackets which we used to sell to places like Whistles, leather and silk wallets which we used to sell to places like Selfridges. My polo sticks I ended up selling to Harrods and to Lily Whites, all building up experience and lots of dead ends. We'd, we'd source products from India and we couldn't sell them. So I learned very quickly as an entrepreneur, you never give up, but also you know when to give up. It's a complete contradiction. Uh, but So there were a few dead ends uh, where we tried to sell pearls from Hyderabad in India, which is very famous for pearls. We couldn't sell one string of pearls because we couldn't compete with the Japanese pearls. Uh, we had the agency for the biggest brand of bath towels in India, a household name called Bombay Dying. We thought it was a license to print money. We couldn't sell one bath towel because the Portuguese towels were much closer, less freight, much better quality and cheaper. So, you know, you don't go on trying to sell those bath towels, banging your head against a brick wall, you give up. So I learned that lesson very quickly as well. Uh, to, to sort of try something that doesn't work, fail quickly and move on and learn some lessons. And that was fabulous being on this journey. And of course, the other thing is, once you're on that journey, you're ready to take opportunities when they come to you. And by chance, we got an introduction when we wanted to import seafood from India. Uh, that was our next big venture. We thought high value. Uh, India was starting to export lots of seafood. Um, and we went to see our business mentor. And I think it's very important to have a mentor. We have a mentor who's my business partner's uncle, retired Indian Air Force fighter pilot from the Second World War. Wonderful, wonderful man. And we used to go and see him regularly. He would help us, give us advice, introduce us to other entrepreneurs, introduce us to our first bank. Um, and one of these meetings, we said, we want to import seafood, Uncle Keshav. What do you think? And he said, you won't believe it. One of my best friends from Bangalore has set up a seafood factory in Cochin in India. And he told me if anyone wants to import seafood to put them in touch with me. And so he put us in touch with this uh, uh, company and it ended up being a subsidiary of Mysore Breweries, the biggest independent brewers in India based in Bangalore. And by then, we'd built up enough experience after about nine months, being nine, ten months in business. And we said, come on, this is the beer idea. Forget the seafood. Let's find out if they want to um, export beer to us. Uh, and so their main business was beer. The seafood was just a subsidiary. And the mentor, our mentor, Uncle Kesha, we said, we're not interested in seafood anymore. We want to know if they want to export beer to us. And uh, they said, of course, we'd be ready to export beer. And that's how the Cobra beer journey started. It took a year to develop the product. And, uh, and, and, and the moment we started selling Cobra, we dropped all the other um, items that we were importing from India and just focused on the beer. So interesting. Um, I mean, a million lessons in this. I just want to get clarification on a couple of things. Is this all just one company or did you start multiple companies, shut them no, down no, when they weren't just, working? No, no, it's all through one company. All and it was in it, the early days, it was called A&K International. So Arjun, my partner, Karan, A&K International, AKI. And then once Cobra Beer took off, we changed it to Cobra Beer Limited. Uh, so everything was done through AKI in the early days, including importing um, Cobra beer from India when it first started with AKI. And of course, one of the big lessons here is 
it's serendipity. A professor that I've worked with at Cambridge University, the business school there, Mark Duron, describes serendipity as seeing what everyone else sees, but thinking what no one else has thought. And luck, the best definition of luck that I've ever heard is in the Harvard Business School classroom, luck is when determination meets opportunity. And of course, we had the beer idea, I was determined, and when the opportunity came, the introduction to Mysore Breweries, we leapt at the opportunity. And uh, that's how we, we, we started. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, you know, I personally find serendipity to be my guiding force in entrepreneurship as well. Um, I think actually one of the biggest things, I've been doing entrepreneurship for 10 years now, so I'm a baby compared to you. Um, and had very much like you, I've tried many, many things and failed many things and onto currently a winner, which is uh, nice at last. Um, but I, I really reflected over COVID actually specifically um, on the notion of serendipity because part of my reflection on serendipity is I was great at, be at being aware that luck doesn't come to you. Serendipity doesn't just happen. I had to go out there and create my chances and I had real drive and hustle whether I felt like it or not to get up out of bed to work all day, to go to the event after work at night, to go seek out the things as well, you know, the amount of people that are so lazy and come to me saying, can you recommend any events that I should go to and stuff? I never asked anyone those questions. If you can't figure out your own agency to go get out the door and go meet people and find a way and hustle through, this is not the game for you, my friend. Um, but then COVID happened. And I felt really bad. Like there's a, you know, a year and a half to two years. And then obviously the landscape's also changed quite a lot around, you know, how much um, we do remote or in person. And anyway, and events, obviously. This point being... It's so fascinating to hear your story and how much of the luck that you created actually came from a drive and a hustle to try and do things, but also the energy of getting out the building and doing stuff. And I wonder how much of that part of it, potentially new entrepreneurs that have come over the last couple of years have actually missed out on. And if there's a lesson in that about what they need to retrain themselves to do to create that luck, create that opportunity. Yes, you, you, you've got to be proactive. And you've got to go out there. It's that whole determination. Without being determined, you're not going to be lucky. I, I visualize it as waves that go past you in life. So if you are determined, you might just catch one of those waves. If you're not, those waves will go past you all, all your life. And a, a spiritual leader, one of the biggest, most famous spiritual leaders in the world, uh, Sadhguru, uh, I wished him luck. He was going on a journey to create awareness for... Uh, saving the soil and having at least 3 to 6% organic content in soil. So we flagged him off in Westminster Square, in Parliament Square, and he rode his motorbike to raise awareness from here to, to India. And I said, good luck. And I said, Sadhguru, and I gave him my definition of luck. And he said, well, I, yeah, it's a good definition. He said, it's also, I can express it another way. He said, luck is all about timing. If, if, you, are, if you are ready, but the market is not ready, it won't work. If the market is ready and you're not ready, it won't work. If you're ready and the market is ready, it'll work. And that's luck. And it's all about timing. And with me, with Cobra Beer, the timing was perfect. It's when Indian food was on the up. Indian restaurants were just going. It, they literally had doubled in the past decade the number of Indian restaurants in the UK. And they've doubled since. And beers from around the world were starting to be imported into the UK. And people were getting used to trying 
different beers instead of the fizzy, horrible, bland, bloating lagers that you were presented with in the UK at that stage. So I, I think my timing was good. Yeah, and it's a really great reflection, right? It's not all just about uh, luck. Uh, it's not all just about hustle. There's a sort of magical component that often just comes from consistency and resilience, just keeping going. Um, and, you know, reflecting on your mentor as well, I think there's a really lovely quote uh, that I came across, which is, when the student is ready, uh, the teacher appears. And I think that is just so relevant for various times of your entrepreneurship journey. It's this very similar kind of reality as well. You know, you might have the right teacher, but if you're in the wrong mindset at the time, it's not the right teacher for you at that moment. Yeah, yeah. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. The other thing I just wanted to get clarity on, because you told that first part so eloquently, is the time frame. So how many... So it's such a jack-of-all-trades uh, story. I, I love it. Um, you know, it's just, uh, we'll try the towels, and then we'll try the seafood, and then we'll try this, and we'll try... I can just imagine you and your partner having fun. Most importantly, it actually sounds like fun. You tell it with a smile on your face. It sounds like you're having a great time, which is a really great attitude for learning. But how long was that period of trying and failing and almost making it and then not making it? What was that period? Yeah, and also, I was I was earning money at that time, helping... a. A friend of mine from my chartered accountancy days, one of my best friends, who had started a publishing company selling um, an accounting, European accounting focus. And it was an accounting magazine sold to accounting firms. And I was his sales director. So I was earning commission selling magazines, working from my friend's kitchen table and, and side by side setting up the other businesses. 
And my partner had a job working in a commodities business. So we'd meet up in the evenings, meet over the weekends, and be selling all these other products. But of course, the moment Cobra Beer, we started working on Cobra Beer, I stopped working for my friend. Um, and uh, then we had to make Cobra Beer work. We had to get some income in. Uh, with these other projects, we were getting income in, but not enough to, to survive on. Yeah, when you know, you know. Um, and there's always that chat about, you know, product market fit, which I think is more of a technical term as in it's more from a technology business that people use it but um i think when you've had the experience of do people want towels no not really do people want this no not really do people want beer oh shit yeah they really do um so i think you notice well i mean all the products always there was a demand for each one of the products is can you compete can you do Mm. something that is different and better that's going to change the marketplace forever and can you do it in a financially viable way so with with the, with with the towels and the pearls, I couldn't I couldn't compete on price. I couldn't compete on quality. Yeah, and actually, you know, I've heard you say in another interview, you said a whole string of really wise words, and then at the end you went and make a profit. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? So many entrepreneurs genuinely great ideas, great execution, great everything, but that is actually a very hard lesson that people learn the hard way. And people yep. can go to business school and they learn that first. And everyone who mocks, myself included, by the way, I mock people that go to business school and like, just do a fucking business and you'll learn and it will be better than paying someone else. You'll pay to learn. But joking aside, like you do kind of slowly learn the and make a profit bit a bit later sometimes in business when you do it practically. Oh, you could go to business school and and be an entrepreneur as well. So I've attended three business schools. and I'm yeah, No, but I guess my point is that there's a multiple ways of doing it. But at least in business school, they teach that as like 101. And I'm saying when you do the entrepreneurship path, sometimes you actually miss that very core lesson. Yeah. And again, when you start, so with Cobra, if you know you've got a product that's different and better and it's going to change the marketplace, then you have the confidence to charge the right price for it. And so from the beginning, we were more expensive than the other beers. We also, I was very, very strict on maintaining the gross margin. And I have been throughout the journey of this beer, uh, maintaining that gross margin. And, and that has enabled me to be able to invest in marketing, to grow the brand. And of course, when the time is right to make a profit. How do you determine like how to make the right choice on gross margin? Um, for what it's worth, um, my business that's taking off at the moment is called Heights. Um, our first product, we got this completely wrong. Um, and so it's a very successful product, but got the margin calculation slightly wrong, made the product too premium in a space where you can't really demand the premium price for it quite so much. So we had a challenge there. Second product, um, we learned that lesson very well. And it's made an enormous difference to the business, like night and day. Um, and it goes from being feeling like a startup where everything is stressful all the time to we're already profitable. Um, and so, you, but you lo- like we learn from one product to the next. Whereas it sounds like with Cobra, you had the right intention from the first moment of understanding that core principle. So, is there an equation in beer versus in another category of how you can define what a healthy minimum or maximum margin is to to make a winning business? It it really varies from industry to industry of what that gross margin should be. So if you're in a restaurant, you work on a certain margin for food and you work on a certain margin for drink. 
if you're a wholesaler, you work on a certain margin. If you're a manufacturer, you work on a certain margin. So it, it varies depending on which stage you're in, uh, where you're, you, you fit in in the supply chain. And the first and most important thing is to set your selling price. And in my case, I always set it to be slightly more than the other, than Kingfisher or Carlsberg. I was more expensive. You've got to have that confidence with an unknown brand right up front and say, you don't know this product. Um, our packaging is not as slick in those days from India. Our packaging was not very impressive. Uh, it was only one label, unvarnished, brown cardboard cartons. But my liquid was fantastic. And I said, you're going to pay more for this because it's authentically imported from India and it's a far better beer with a very complex recipe and you'll sell more. So if you pay me one pound more a case, you're going to more than make that up by selling one extra bottle of beer. Um, and if you sell more beer, you make more profits. Yeah, I guess the um, the next logical question is um, distribution. So you start the brand. And I think also one of the things that, are, you know, I've come to understand about your way of approaching Cobra particularly is actually investing in the brand, um, which is something that people kind of forget to do sometimes. You know, you can overinvest in product, you can overinvest in distribution. You guys have been very careful about investing in the brand itself. Um, I guess I'd love to know a little bit more about the distribution journey with Cobra. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's over you know, there's over 10,000 Indian restaurants in the UK now? Yes. So is part of your distribution journey completely tracked on the back of the growth and popularity of Indian food in the UK? Like, could you give us a little, I mean, I mean almost like a timeline of how um, Cobra Beer distributed and grew, but then also like how you handled those growth challenges internally? Yes. So when we started... We, uh, we had a container full of bottled beer sent from Bangalore. Half of it went to Newcastle to a distributor. The other half was meant to go to a distributor in London. She rejected the beer because it failed a haze test. Perfectly legal, but for her, she wanted perfect haze, and we couldn't give it to her. So she rejected the beer, and which was one of the best things that ever happened because my partner and I ended up selling it ourselves. And we got into the car, into our Citroen Dershavo called Albert, which cost 295 pounds. Indeed, it pushed starting every day. You could see the road through the holes in the floor of the car. could carry exactly 15 cases of Cobra beer, and we'd go door to door to the restaurants and sell it. And that was the best decision I made. And I had a breakthrough strategy, and the breakthrough strategy was I had no money for marketing. We couldn't even afford branded beer glasses. We had one table tent card with green and black printing because I couldn't afford full color printing that told the story of Cobra Beer. And so we would go and sell the product on its merits of being an extra smooth, less gassy beer, a very complex recipe, you know, compared with a normal basic beer that has malted barley, yeast, one variety of hops and water. We had malted barley, yeast, three varieties of hops, maize, rice, wheat, water. So much more complex recipe that gets with this less gassy, extra smooth taste that makes Cobra the best beer to drink with food. And that was right from the beginning was brewed smooth for all food. And that's our platform for all the varieties that we have, whether it's King Cobra, whether it's our Cobra Zero, uh, whether it's our, our new IPA, it's all smooth, brewed smooth for food. So we knew we had that special selling point that was a real benefit to the restaurants because if it's smoother, people, as long as they're drinking responsibly, drink more. If they're drinking more and they can eat more because they're not bloated. Uh, and so that's how we were able to sell the beer in uh, and 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 charge more for it. But I went for the restaurants first. The breakthrough strategy was 
I could, with brilliant sales skills, get the beer on the shelves of a supermarket, but it would gather dust because I had no money to market it and nobody knew about my product. And I said, as Indian food's getting more popular and everyone goes to Indian restaurants, everyone of all age groups, uh, whether you're well off or not so well off, whether you live in rural areas or you live in the cities, you go to Indian restaurants. Everyone loves Indian food. So people will discover my product on the tables. And because I couldn't do draft beer from Bangalore, I had to do the double-sized big Indian beer bottles, which to this day is the biggest selling size of beer is a 650ml bottle in India. If you travel to India, 80% of beer is sold in big bottles, and they're returnable bottles in India. So I said, if I can get those big bottles on the table, they stand out. And in an industry, it's an obstacle, and you've got to convert obstacles into opportunities. And the restaurants would say, A, we don't need your beer. We've got Kingfisher and Carlsberg and a German beer. Why do we need another beer? Next is... We want small bottles and draft, and you're giving me this big double-sized bottle that I am not used to, and you're charging me more. So, and you've then got to say, well, the big bottle is the authentic way beer is sold in India. The big bottle is double the time sales in one go. Big bottle means, therefore, you're making double the profits in one go. Your waiters can leave the bottles on the table, which means they're freed up to do other work. People will share the beer like they share Indian food, and that means they will actually end up, as long as they're drinking responsibly, they'll consume more beer and hopefully more food, so you'll make more sales and more money. And then people at other tables will say, hang on, what's that? Is it a bottle of wine? It looks like a bottle of wine. No, it's a bottle of beer, and it spreads like wildfire around the restaurants. And then people discover the product by word of mouth, and Cobra built up its awareness, and then we got it a few years later into the supermarkets. And today we have about over 7,000 restaurants sell Cobra in the UK, and over 10,000 branches of supermarkets and off-license chains and independent off-license and grocery stores sell Cobra beer. So you've got the mixture of both and the restaurants are our base, our foundation. Without their support, we wouldn't be here today. Uh, and I have a very, very close relationship with the restaurant industry who've been wonderful. They've taught me so many of my lessons in the beginning, putting the customers first always. And any big decision I made, I've always the consumer who's going to give me my answer. And I learned that from the restaurants. Yeah, I got to say, uh, knowing your story and reading about it um, without looking at a picture of you, obviously I was expecting you to be quite unhealthy looking, uh, spending that much time in Indian restaurants professionally <laughs> as your job. Uh, I was quite surprised uh, you managed to keep, keep in that amazing shape, which uh, I'm assuming you're just not the typical, yeah, I drink, I drink lots of beer and go to Indian restaurants professionally. Um, has that actually been a challenge as you've, as you've gotten older? Have you had to work out twice as hard to do your job? No, I've, I've, I'm always rushing around. So I never stand still. And uh, I'm always rushing from one thing to another. And I make a point of trying to get some exercise on a regular basis uh, when I'm not traveling. What throws it for a six I find is when I'm traveling. But otherwise... Uh, I, I go to the gym, I, um, I I still box. I learned how to box at the age of eight. My father, being in the Gurkhas, uh, they taught me how to box. I had my first exhibition fight at the age of eight. And I boxed at boarding school. Uh, and so I now enjoy uh, sparring uh, in, in, in the gym with an instructor. Uh, I play tennis. Um, yep. Yeah. So I, I try and keep as active as I, as I can. Yeah, I guess you have to if you work in the, in the alcohol business. It really makes a lot of sense. And, in, and, and being in Parliament, you're rushing from, from your parliamentary office to the chamber, to a meeting, to a committee. Uh, so you, you can easily put in 10,000 steps in one day in Parliament. So I know that your, uh, your background, obviously, with your, your dad said in, in the military, right? Ro a royal commander. He, he was a, yeah, he was a general, yes. Did your par are your parents still alive when you became a lord? 
No, my father missed it by one year, which was oh. he sadly died of lung cancer. And I knew I might be getting uh, getting the place. And I told him, I said, look, it's not not at all certain whether it will happen. And he said, I'm sure it will. And of course it did, but it was a year after he passed away. But my mother's still alive, yes. And what's the feeling around that? And I guess I'm asking because obviously the Britain and India's extremely intertwined history, I can't really tell because I'm English. I wouldn't be able to tell. Is that like immense pride or is it like almost, you know, strange to them that you'd want that you'd live here and want to, so to speak? I know obviously you went to university in Cambridge and stuff. So I'm just wondering, like, is there reaction? It, it is a matter of great pride. It's a matter of great pride for me. Uh, it's one of the best things that happened to me. I was the third youngest peer when I joined the House of Lords in 2006. And I've you know, been, been in the House of Lords 17 years. And it's an absolute privilege, and I and I genuinely love it. And I'm the first Zoroastrian peer, Zoroastrian Parsi peer. I come from the smallest minority community in the world. There's just 100,000 of us. And the most famous Zoroastrian Parsi is Freddie Mercury of Queen. Um, and so How we, annoying. There's always one, <laughs> isn't there? <laughs> so, the, I mean, no, I mean, the others you might have heard of, are the Tatas, you know, who own Jaguar Land Rover and Tata yeah, Steel. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're Zoroastrian Parsis. Zubin Mehta, the famous conductor. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's a wonderful community, tiny. So it's it's a matter of pride for the community, for the family, uh, but also in my case, my one of my great um, people who's inspired me. I've had two. One, my father, who was a great leader, and my maternal grand great grandfather, Didi Italia. He was somebody who was an entrepreneur. Uh, ironically, started in the liquor business in India nearly lost his business three times, did a lot of public service, um, was a great philanthropist, great family man, and then became a member of the House of Lords in India. So in many ways, I followed in his footsteps four generations later, but doing it in the UK. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> and, and, his, and his motto, his motto to talk about something you, you mentioned earlier on, was to aspire and achieve. And, and I've adopted that motto from my great-grandfather, and I've added to it, to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. So you've got to come up with that idea, want to get somewhere with the idea. You may have little or no means, but you go out there and you make it happen, but you always do it the right way. You strike me as someone who, um, just hearing your story, it, you know, hustle is a horrible word because it's obviously been demonized over the last couple of years for... Um, uh, the extreme hustle bro culture that obviously isn't healthy. However, on the flip side of it, you sound like a very natural salesman. And I can imagine back in the day, you just telling the story about all those restaurants, right? You can just imagine, you can picture you doing the job and people coming away from it being quite excited. And it sounds to me like um, in those sales pitches, you learned an angle, an aspect of creativity as well. Um, you know, you just shared a good example previously with a uh, an objection that you would always get and you're always able to turn the objection into an opportunity about actually, no, this is why it is a great idea based on what you just said. Um, I guess my question is, how core and fundamental do you think the skills of creativity and salesmanship are for entrepreneurs? Both of them are absolutely essential. And I think I first learned I could sell when I used to stand for elections for the Cambridge Union, uh, the debating society. And I, I led the Cambridge Union 
uh, two years running in our annual debate against Oxford. And my opponent was Michael Gove, the cabinet minister. We became good friends and to this day, uh, although we were opponents. And when you stood for elections, you had to go door to door to the different colleges, up and down staircases. And whether it was raining or whether it was snowing, I'd be on my bike going out there and trying to get people to vote for me. And, and one, you realize it takes selling is hard work. There's no shortcut to it. You've got to put in those, the, the footsteps, the miles, the hard work. Uh, and then the second thing is you've got to convince people to vote for you. So you've got to sell yourself and, and a complete stranger and ask them to vote for you. So you know, that's where I first think I learned, learned to sell and knew I could sell. And the other aspect of creativity, I was told throughout my childhood I was not creative because I was useless at art. I couldn't draw. I couldn't paint. I learned the piano. I passed grade one, but they told me, You did this stop. painting it behind did... you though, right? No, 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 I didn't. This is just in the in the room. Um, I couldn't possibly do something like that. Uh, and so I was hopeless at art, and I couldn't. Could, you know, played the piano, passed grade one, gave up. And I literally went through my whole studies, my university, being told and believing I was not creative. And it's only when I started business, being an entrepreneur, that I realized that I'm very creative, and it's one of the most important skills to being an entrepreneur is to be ability to be creative and innovative. And, and I think I often get in my lectures will ask an audience anywhere in the world, how many of you think you're creative and half the hands go up. And I say to the people who didn't put their hands up, I said, everyone has the ability to be creative. And I just wish in our education systems, we would encourage children from a young age to have that confidence to be creative and unleash that creative spirit that exists in every one of us. And even if somebody goes into the civil service, I'd rather they had the ability to be creative and innovative. I, I think our GDP growth rate would more than double if we prioritize creativity. I suppose the other thing that you would um, experience in your entrepreneurship career, we've got salesmanship, we've got uh, creativity, but resilience, right? At the end of the day, you're someone whose business has almost died three times. Can you give us a snapshot of those deaths? And can you give us a snapshot of uh, how you picked yourself up in those moments to push through? Yes. I, I think there's one word that sums up entrepreneurs more than any other word, and that's guts. You've got to have the guts to do it. If I give a talk to um, school children, lower six, there's some annual lectures I give, entrepreneurship days at schools. And I say, how many of you want to start your own business one day? Oh, almost all the hands will go up. How many of you actually will have the guts to do it when you have the other option of a secure job uh, or following the rat race, following the herd into banking or consulting or whatever it is, and, and then taking that risk to start your own business uh, where there's no guarantee of success and it's really hard. That takes guts. The second thing is it takes guts to stick with it when others would give up. And I've nearly lost my business three times. Can you, can you actually go through those crises where you nearly lose it all and get through those crises and pick yourself up and keep going? And, and I think that's a true entrepreneur has real guts. And, and I've been through the, not only the starting up phase, and then you've got to cross that credibility gap when you start because nobody knows your brand, nobody knows your product. You've got zero credibility. So why, why do people buy from you? Why do people supply you? Why do people finance you? Why do people work with you 
when you have zero credibility. And they do it if you have that passion and faith and confidence and belief in your product, in your idea, and in yourself. And that gives people the faith to trust you to give you a chance. And then when you nearly lose your business, it's horrible. I mean, it's a, each one of the three times is very different. And each one came out of the blue. And like the crises we're experiencing in the world, and just look back over the last three years, three and a half years, where the pandemic, nobody predicted that pandemic. The start of the Ukraine war last year, nobody predicted the start of the Ukraine war and all the repercussions from that. And just now what's happening, the sad situation in the Middle East, nobody predicted that would happen in the way that it has. So when crises come, they invariably are black swan events that people don't predict. It's how you deal with the crisis and get through the crisis that actually matters. And I've found there are three things that have enabled me to get through my crises. Although each crisis was different, each one was not predicted, the three things that got me through were exactly the same. One is you've got to have a strong brand. And a strong brand doesn't just apply to a consumer brand. A strong brand is whether you're B2B or B2C, having a strong brand makes a huge difference. And the Cobra brand has been very resilient. Even through the pandemic, we were very resilient. When our restaurants were shut because of lockdown, our supermarket sales saved us. And the resilience of the brand, next thing is to have a team that is loyal and will stand by you even when everything seems to be collapsing. If you have a family, your family support. My wife, who I met one year after I started Cobra, she's been by my side throughout and been an amazing support to me. I wouldn't be here talking to you without her support. And the third thing I believe to get you through a crisis is it is better to fail doing the right thing than to succeed doing the wrong thing. Can you play with a straight bat? Can you actually practice integrity when, when in those situations, when everything's collapsing, most people are not practicing integrity. Most people are behaving very badly. Most people are trying to do whatever they can to save their own selves. Um, so if you can do those three things, brand, family and loyal, team support and integrity, you can get through any crisis. Yeah, and I think those, uh, that kind of advice actually permeates not just business advice, right? That's just life advice. Yeah, you could apply to life advice. but um, And again, what is, what is an extraordinary brand? Uh, when I did uh, my joint venture with Molson Coors 14, 14 years ago, coming up to 14 and a half years ago, uh, when performing the joint venture, and this is a big multi-billion dollar, $15 billion uh, American New York Stock Exchange listed company, uh, one of the biggest brewers in the world, merging with a, a smaller entrepreneurial company. And they said, we want to do this joint venture for three reasons. One, we want you as the entrepreneur to stay on as chairman of the joint venture. Secondly, you've got a great team that you've built. We want your team to join us uh, and integrate within Molson Coors working on Cobra Beer. And third, you have an extraordinary brand. And they, uh, they said, we, ca we, we categorize a brand as being extraordinary if it ticks six things. Firstly, it's based on an undeniable brand truth. In our case, the extra smooth, less gassy beer, that platform that enables us to be a really drinkable beer that goes well with all food, including spicy food and Indian food and curry. Second thing is extraordinary brand has an instantly recognizable and iconic look. And with Cobra beer, I often say to a UK audience, close your eyes and picture a bottle of Cobra beer. And of course they can. Uh, the third is an extraordinary brand uh, never compromises on its principles and never takes any shortcuts. So it always does the right thing. Fourth thing, Extraordinary Brand provides a relevant and consistent experience. Can you, 
It's not a one-day wonder, a one-year wonder. Can you, in our case, produce hundreds of millions of pints and bottles of beer uh, every year, and it's exactly the same taste as the one before? Even though it's natural ingredients, a natural process, the ingredients change with the seasons every year. And I always think it's very unfair. With wine, with, with high-priced, fine wine, it can taste completely different the next year, and you still charge 50 pounds a bottle, but it's fine because it's a different vintage, and, and the weather was different. or the, you know, So it's fine. For, it's so much easier to make wine than beer. With beer, you expect it to taste exactly the same every single time and no excuses. So that's a challenge. An extraordinary brand also uh, produces loyal brand champions. That's the most important thing. That's when people love your brand so much. They'll seek it out. If it's not available, they're disappointed. You go into an Indian restaurant and you order two Cobra beers and they say, sorry, we don't sell Cobra. If you're a loyal brand champion, you walk out and go to another restaurant because you're disappointed your brand is not there. And finally, an extraordinary brand delivers extraordinary profits. So a strong brand helps a lot. And it's interesting because, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, those are good principles for life, a lot of those stand out. And when we think about brand, personal brand is something, of course, that's become a much more interesting fascination over the last uh, few years. You know, personal brand probably wasn't so much a thing when you were starting up an entrepreneurship. There was the odd person like Richard Branson who focused everything on it. And he's basically the pioneer in this with a few others, Steve Jobs. You know, there's a, there's a handful of that era. But nowadays, everyone obviously has a personal brand. And I think that um, whether or not you choose to have a public-facing personal brand and work hard on it um, really is, is a personal choice, but one way or another, it's your reputation. So you have a personal brand, whether or not you choose to actively curate it or not, uh, but it comes back to your principle on integrity. So long as you act with integrity in your personal life, your personal brand, your reputation is probably going to create more opportunities for you along the way. And then also create opportunities for things like mergers and um, interesting opportunities with co massive companies like Molson Coors. Um, was that an exit out of interest? Like, how was the deal actually structured? Like, how's, how, like, what does Cobra Beer look like today? The Molson Coors joint venture, they own 50.1% and I own 49.9% and I've been the permanent chairman since the joint venture started 14 and a half years ago. And it's worked extremely well and the teams are in integrated um, and it's very well structured um, in terms of supply chain, finance, marketing. Um, yeah, and, and then I have my checklist. I can check my, my, the state of my business at any time uh, with my 10 Ps. I've got my 10 Ps of, of any, which you can apply to any institutional business. So product, have you got a good product? Is your product right up to where you want it to be? In my case, a super premium product. Uh, the next is price. Are you pricing your product appropriately? In my case, it's an expensive product. And I explained that we charge more because it's a super premium product. The next thing is place. You've got to have your product available. And I've got my product available in restaurants, in bars, pubs, supermarkets, and exported to 40 countries around the world. Next is, is promotion. You've got to promote your product. In the early days, I couldn't afford a branded beer glass. Today, we have the full suite of integrated marketing from public relations to point of sale to social media to above the line marketing. It's all there. And those are the classic four Ps of marketing. And my extra six Ps, uh, every business, we're manufacturers, uh, but to me, the most important thing in any business is people. 
That's the fifth P. The next P is finance, spelled PH. You can't do anything without the money, and you need to have finance. Uh, the next thing is principles. Uh, it's better to fail doing the right thing than to succeed doing the wrong thing. Next P is partnership. I believe in a partnership model of, of working where you, you treat everyone as your partner, your customer, your supplier, your employees, your shareholders, your accountants, your advertising agency. They're all partners. And the next P is passion. Uh, you, it's, you've got to love what you do. And uh, you follow your passion, not your pension. I still can't walk past the supermarket without going in to see if the Cobra beer is, is there, is in stock and being displayed properly. And the next last P is profits. No point doing any of this unless you make profits. So in terms of like your growth as an entrepreneur, obviously, when you're young, you are this sort of malleable, mistake-ridden, uh, very passionate, but arguably not very refined person who's learning on the job. And at your point, being a lord and with your position in society and your experience, I would assume you are still learning but right at the top of your game. And what I'd like to know is over the curve of that journey, like how have you honed and crafted your skills as a great entrepreneur? Because this is the difference. Like lots of people can be good entrepreneurs, but only a few can get to greatness. And that's where I'm personally looking to go in my career. And so when the student is ready, the teacher appears, I'm ready to learn. Tell me how you go from good to great. Well, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure I could be considered a great entrepreneur, but what I have always tried to do is is to strive, strive for perfection, even with Cobra Beer. To this day, I'm trying to perfect that product e- even more. I mean, you won't even notice it as a, as a consumer, but behind the scenes, I'm always trying to perfect. There's also a sense of restlessness where you've got to be continually wanting to innovate and create. I mean, we've just bringing out a new Cobra Zero beer. And our Zero beer to date has been a good non-alcoholic beer. We're now producing the best tasting non-alcoholic beer by far in the world, which I'm producing in Serbia at a brewery owned by my joint venture partners, Molson Coors, which has the technology to produce a non-alcoholic beer that tastes better than any other and is smooth and, and really easy to drink and wonderful. So you're striving always to do, to do better and better. You always want to learn. I'm, I, I will never stop learning. I've been to three business schools, although I'm already, I've got two degrees I'm, and I'm a chartered accountant, but I've still gone to business school and through executive education at Harvard, at London Business School, uh, at Cranfield, I'm an alumnus of all three business schools and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm doing some research as we speak at Cambridge. Uh, so th- that learning never stops. I mean, as Mahatma Gandhi said, uh, live as if you're going to die tomorrow, learn as if you're going to live forever. And it's that nonstop learning that is really important. Uh, and, and also the growth mindset, if you want to call the growth mindset, of constantly being curious, constantly wanting to learn. And again, the House of Lords, I'm so lucky. If I'm in the House of Lords, I'm not even speaking. If I'm just attending, I will learn because I've got world experts in every field there who are just phenomenal people to learn from. So that learning never stops. And, and also mistakes. You've got to be prepared to make those mistakes. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite things is good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So it, it's making those mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And there's no shortcut to that. It's interesting. You mentioned growth mindset. I've just taken my team on a, a week retreat last week. 
Um, and the theme of the retreat was growing up because we're going from a certain size company into the next stage. And, you know, there are many things you need to do as a company when you're growing up. Um, and it's growing almost too fast around us without us actually taking stock and being like, okay, how do we all do our jobs as adults now? Because it's uh, entering a whole new, a whole new stage. Um, and I had a facilitator come in for a day and just host sessions on growth mindset. And that was it. And one of the great um, insights and learnings and things that we all practice together by doing feedback um, was identifying our blind spots, something that is ultimately a quintessential part of having a growth mindset is almost, you know, being aware that you don't know everything and being aware that um, you don't know what you don't know. And there are areas where you don't know and someone else doesn't know. And how can you identify what those are? Because they're going to help give you the awareness to go on to the next level. So the question is, what are your blind spots that you've become aware of in your career? Uh, I, I could give you um, many examples of when you when you've you've got a, a blind spot, and if I give you if I give you one one example, when we were importing the product uh, from India and we imported it for six years, my business partner then decided to leave. Uh, he'd had enough of the UK. Um, um, he didn't like the weather here. <laughs> he wanted to go back to India. He now lives in the states. Not, and not the first his... person to complain about that. <laughs> and uh, so he. Left on his own terms, I bought him out on exactly what he wanted. And to this day, he's one of my best friends. And I then was on my own. And that took some adjusting too. When you've been living and working with somebody, started a business for six years, and suddenly you're on your own. It took a huge amount of getting used to. And I built a team. I started getting in some investment. I diluted my equity. Um, and then the sales took off. The year after my partner left, my sales doubled in one year. And the problems of importing the product from India quadrupled. I was getting quality problems, consistency problems. By then, we become the biggest export beer out of India and hundreds of containers a year. And containers were not arriving. We'd have delays in shipments. And the brewery were doing their best in Bangalore. I had a very good relationship with them. So I had this mindset that I am the successful beer, the biggest ever beer exported out of India, and it's authentically imported from India. So it's this extra smooth taste, but the fact that it's imported from India is one of its biggest, most important factors. And that was my blind spot. And when we came up with this problem, the wholesalers, by now we're supplying to lots of distributors, said, look, we're getting all these complaints from our restaurants. Uh, you know, we, we, don't, we can't go on like this. And the restaurants are complaining. So I said, well, maybe I have to start brewing under license in the UK. You do that, you're finished. We'll stop buying from you. The restaurants stop buying from you. The consumers will stop buying Cobra beer because it's only because it's authentically imported. And I actually believe that. But then where are you in between a rock and a hard place? How could I carry on? And I, I said, but I've got all these consumer complaints. And the wholesale said, that's your problem. The breweries tried their best. They just could not do any better. So that's when I, the restaurants had taught me this lesson in the beginning when I used to go to them and say, look, please, will you try my beer? And a lot of them would say for religious reasons, they didn't drink. They said, don't, don't worry about us not drinking. It's our customers that matter. If your product is so good, leave a couple of samples. If our regulars like it, we'll put in an order. If our wider customers like it, we'll reorder. And they gave me that chance and they put their customers first. I've never forgotten that. So I said, let me ask the consumer, how much, what matters to the consumer about Cobra beer? So we conducted surveys 
with thousands of consumers. We said, is it the less gassy, extra smooth taste? Is it the fact that it's imported from India? Is it the fact that it's brewed to an authentic Indian recipe? Is it the fact that it's a premium beer? And we jumbled up these factors and we said, rank in order of importance, one to four. We were shocked by the results. The results showed by a long shot, the most important thing to the consumer was the less gassy, extra smooth taste. And to our shock and surprise, by a long shot, the least important thing to the consumer was the fact that it was imported from India. That gave me the confidence Say, so you got this blind spot, forget it, trust your consumer and move the production to the UK. And I did that, brewed under license, took seven, after seven years of importing from India, it took a year to set it all up here in the UK. I shifted the brewing here and I've never looked back. World-class quality, great packaging. I could do draft beer, which I could do from India at my doorstep. And I trusted my consumer. And those same wholesalers said they would never buy the beer from me, bought even more beer from me. And, 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 and the other good thing there is I left the brewery in India on good terms. I paid them every penny. I didn't claim any credits for all the bad quality and inconsistent quality. I paid them every penny that I owed them then to the extent that that brewery has now sold out to one of the biggest brewers in the world. In fact, the biggest brewers in the world today. And we are still family friends with the owners of that brewery to this day. They're some of my closest friends. And so we left them on good terms. And so trust your consumer. You can get a blind spot so easily. And what about the the time that your business partner actually left? Because you'd been with him for so long. I guess there must have been a question of, uh, of confidence, of doubt, um, all the human things that come up. Like, is this right for you? Am I going to still love it? Can you remember that? No, 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 no. I never had any doubts. I knew the plane would take off. He didn't believe the plane would take off. He wasn't convinced that the plane would take off. I knew it would take off. I never had any doubts on that. I never had any doubts about carrying on on my own. But it was very difficult to adapt to being on my own when, when I was used to living. And, and, and it's only, I think, a year or two before he left that I'd moved out that my wife and I, we got married, we you know, moved into our own flat. Uh, so otherwise, my partner and I were living and working in the same premises. So it, it took a lot, it was a big shock. It took me a while to get used to it. Um, and again, you talk to most entrepreneurs, very few start on their own. Almost every one starts with a business partner. I mean, you look, all the famous entre entrepreneurs did it. I mean, whether it's Bill Gates or Richard Branson, everyone starts a partner. They don't always last. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, you get from a business partner in an ideal world is trust you know it's that they're bought in as much as you're bought in and in an ideal world that relationship you know you can learn skills but trust has to be at the fundamental basis of that relationship and you have to really feel like you're both putting in the same amount of love energy belief confidence all of the things um i'd love to know if you ever like if you felt challenged around trust after he left, as in that was your confidant, that was your business partner. So did you feel like you were sort of um, very alone afterwards or there were other people in the company to sort of fill that gap for you? What, what, the the two, two things, two aspects to what you've just said. One is with trust. Um, I would have trusted Arjun Reddy, my partner, with my life. There was complete trust. And that is so important. Uh, ideally, you should bring complementary skills to the partnership, um, different skills that you put together uh, 
but also more important than that is having that complete trust in each other. And I think that, that, that one of my Harvard Business School professors in the pandemic gave a, a, a virtual lecture on trust. And if I summarize a one-hour lecture into one minute, she said to get trust from people is like a triangle. The first point of the triangle is you've got to be authentic. Is it the real you people are dealing with? Next part of the triangle is logic. Do you have the capability, the professional ability, the knowledge to deliver what you're promising to deliver to the other party? And the third part of the triangle is empathy. Are you in it for yourself? Or are you in it for them? So if you can be authentic, have the capability, the logic, and if you're empathetic, you can get trust from other people. And it's the most powerful thing is to be able to get trust uh, in your business, whatever you're doing, whether it's to get people to invest in you or whether it's to get people to work with you. Trust is, is absolutely paramount. And the other aspect of getting used to being on my own, what really helped was not only my wife's support, which was phenomenal, but also I was, I'd built up a team. By then I was building up a team of people who, were, some of them are still with me now, decades later, who have stood by my side. And that makes the world of difference, having loyal team members who you can completely rely upon. Moving into sort of the, I guess not latter stage of your career, because you said you've been there over a decade, but... How has uh, entrepreneurial life actually transitioned since being in the House of Lords? Is it a completely different world? Is it the same? I'm not talking about in the House of Lords. I'm talking about the world of entrepreneurship for you generally. What's wonderful is being a, a, a relatively younger peer. So as a third youngest when I joined, I'm still one of the younger ones because the average age is 70. But a lot of wisdom in the House of Lords uh, is that I've been able to continue to build my business and carry on being an entrepreneur and bringing that real-world experience into my contributions in the House of Lords. So I think it's been a benefit to Parliament having me uh, carrying on being an entrepreneur in business. Uh, but it's also, I think, being in Parliament has helped me a lot because I've learned so much. Um, it, it, it really, that growing as an individual uh, has been phenomenal. Uh, and, and, and to be able to contribute, to make a difference, uh, to be becoming president of the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI, from June 2020 to 2022, two of the proudest years in my, in my, my career. I was the first entrepreneur to be president of CBI. Normally, it's a FTSE 100 chair, first person relatively younger, the first ethnic minority president of CBI. And then, as luck would have it, well, some people say bad luck, but I thought it was good luck, that I was present during the worst global crisis since the Second World War in leading the CBI through and British industry through the pandemic, through the start of the Ukraine war, and to be able to try and help save business and save the economy working with government uh, was a huge privilege. And I think my entrepreneurial background helped me uh, actually do much better than I think a FTSE 100 chair would have done. Yeah, I also wanted to know what your experience was being in that position during COVID. Um, so not just running a business, but also, I don't know what the right words are. Like I was going to say being responsible for other businesses too in the UK. I mean, that's not quite fair to put that responsibility on you, but certainly a different kind of responsibility to what you're used to. Like how much of a growth opportunity was that for you? Hugely. And what it also reinforced and reaffirmed was the intuitive leadership that you develop um, being an entrepreneur, because you're always spotting problems or opportunities and solutions and action. So it's problem, solution, action. And, and when it came to the pandemic, I could spend hours giving you all the different examples, but I'll give you a couple of quick examples. 
right up front, I realized when lockdown started that businesses would run out of money. And I knew that the banks would not lend them any money because of the uncertainty. Nobody knew how long this pandemic was going to last or how bad things were going to be. And with that uncertainty, banks were difficult enough to borrow from in the first place would not lend. And I knew the only way that banks would lend is if the government guaranteed the loans. And I knew that even the 85% government small firms loan guarantee loans, 80%, 85% would not be enough because the banks in an uncertain environment would not be willing to take that 10, 15% risk. And so that's when I pushed right up front. I was the first person to say, this will only work if you have 100% guaranteed loans from the government. And then I pushed for it. Of course, government wouldn't listen. Um, initially, my team at the CBI said, oh, they'll never do that, 100% guarantee. I said, of course, they'll have to, otherwise the money will not flow. And they tried 80% guarantee, the money was not flowing. And then I saw that Germany and Switzerland were doing 100% guaranteed loans. I kept pushing for it in Parliament. And again, having that advantage of being able to speak on the floor of the House of Lords, as well as being present at CBI, I was able to persuade the government. And we had those bounce back loans, 100% guaranteed, up to 50,000 pounds. And the number of SMEs I have met who said those loans saved their business during the, the pandemic. And yes, of course, there was some fraud, but it saved one and a half million of those loans were taken out. It saved hundreds of thousands of, of businesses. And that was one example. The other one was lateral flow tests. I'm not a, um, I don't have a medical background, but I could see very quickly these PCR tests were very expensive, taking a long time. And I got to know about lateral flow tests from America in August 2020. I start push, started pushing for the government to provide free lateral flow tests to every citizen in this country and every business and to get people to test regularly to, provide, to prevent isolation and to prevent lockdowns. The government wouldn't listen. Eventually, they listened. If you remember, before the pandemic ended, they were available to every one of us free, delivered to your house. You could pick them up free from a pharmacy. And every business, every citizen had them. We ran out of them. If you remember, December 2021, January 2022, we ran out of lateral flow tests. People were so used to using them. I say we could have avoided lockdowns two and three if the government had listened earlier to me. But again, there, there we are. And then Oxford University has had tests that have proven how effective these lateral tests. We could have prevented children from losing out on school, university students from missing out on university, um, if only government had listened more and earlier and quicker. But at least they eventually did listen. But that's something as an entrepreneur I spotted ahead of the time. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great example of why we also need diversity of thought and diversity of experience in these spaces, right? Yeah. Oh, and by the way, diversity, I, I launched something called Change the Race Ratio when I was president of CPI. It's a great initiative with many of the most famous institutions in this country and businesses that are members of Change the Race Ratio. Uh, and I'm, I'm just stepping um, from being the founder chair of the initiative to becoming president. And Trevor Phillips is taking over from me as, as chair. And this is to encourage ethnic minority participation across all business. And the... There is no question about it. More diverse companies uh, perform better. And when I talk about diversity, I'm talking about all sorts of diversity. Um, when, when, whether you're talking about ethnic diversity, gender diversity, the more diverse companies are, the better they perform. McKinsey has, has proven that the top quartile of businesses who are diverse 
are 36% more profitable than the bottom quartile. Deloitte have conducted surveys that show that more diverse companies are more innovative. And I know that. I built up a mini United Nations when I started Cobra Beer, from just two of us to building up a team from all over the world. And that diversity of background, of culture, of mindset, you put it all together, is very powerful. It creates a buzz. It creates innovation. Uh, and uh, I've seen that firsthand. You know, I've, I've seen that firsthand by accident almost. I started my company Heights in the pandemic. And as a result, uh, we, we decided, well, screw it, we'll just hire from anywhere in the world. We'll just hire the best candidates. And now we do our team retreat. We fly people in from eight different countries. You know, you've got America, you've got Asia, you've got Africa. It's, it's, it makes it so much difference. Um, you get such a completely different culture. Um, and what's even more interesting on that is, you know, you do what you always do in a company, which is you define the values and values are borderless. Um, but the way that different cultures uh, communicate and give you feedback and insights around what those values mean to them and how they can bring them to life is actually super eye-opening. And that's, to me, been one of the really interesting values in uh, in, in, in starting a remote company by default through COVID. I guess parting question for you, what, you know, you've done so much already. So you've got a few decades left in you. Would you imagine you're going to be uh, your, your next achievements? What are you aiming towards? And let's not forget what Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, let's uh, live as if you're going to die tomorrow and learn as if you're going to live forever. So yes, I, I, I really genuinely believe the learning never stops. And, and I'm uh, working on some very exciting research at the moment, which uh, over the next few years, which I'm very excited about. And that's going to be a huge amount of learning and hopefully will also have a lot of impact from what I find, which will be useful to business leaders around the world, uh, including entrepreneurs. I, I really feel that Cobra Beer has got so much more to achieve. Um, in many ways, I feel we're just scratching the surface. We could we could be we could be even bigger, and, and we've got so many more countries we can enter and grow in other markets and more products to develop. Uh, so yeah, I just I just think there's so much more still to be done. Excellent, and I can see the police aren't on your side because they've tried to come and arrest you right at the end of the interview. So, uh, Karen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a massive pleasure and an honour speaking to you and learning a lot from your journey. So, on behalf of all listeners at Secret Leaders, thanks for sharing it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Really good to speak to you. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.